even where the current ruling of the Supreme Court overturns one of its prior decisions. Study will show you, I think, that the reversal is not nearly so abrupt as it would seem to the non-student or as it would seem to the reader of newspapers. The overruling of a precedent has been forecast by decisions which step by step, little step by little step, have gradually responded to the pressure of life and events and have gradually deviated from the earlier ruling. The deviations, I repeat, are due not to the arbitrary and whimsical and capricious judgment of nine men, but I think if you will be patient enough to study the decisions of the court in the context of the times, perhaps you will agree with me that there is an interrelationship and that you can see in the onrush of life's events, the factors that operate to bring about changes. Let me briefly illustrate this by reference to the Gideon case to which Justice Marshall has referred. The Supreme Court decided this case in 1963. It held that all persons uh, in, uh, who were defendants in state courts and who were accused of serious crimes were entitled to counsel. Even if they, if they were indigent, the state had to provide them with counsel for their defense. This case overruled an earlier Supreme Court decision, case decided in 1942, entitled Betts Against Brady. Betts Against Brady held that the state was compelled by the federal constitution to supply counsel to an indigent defendant, but only where there were special circumstances. <coughs> I hope I made that clear. Special circumstances were required before the state would be compelled by the federal constitution to supply counsel to an indigent. That was a decision in Betts and Brady in 1942. Special circumstances might be the defendant's incompetence, his extreme youth, his uh, mental condition, uh, and so on. But cases thereafter came to the Supreme Court and were decided by the court. Uh, in a steady progression after 1942. And those cases clearly showed that the rule requiring the showing of special circumstances was unworkable and it was inadequate. The Supreme Court was driven in practically every case to find special circumstances. And the conclusion emerged inexorably <clears throat> the conclusion emerged that special circumstances existed in every case where a man is brought to trial 
accused of a serious crime, confronted by the <clears throat> mysterious processes, the intricate processes, the subtle processes of the law, and confronted by the power and the skill of the state. That in every one of those cases, every one of those cases, there are, so to speak, special circumstances that no man, as Clarence Darrow himself recognized when he was accused of a criminal offense, is capable of defending himself. So, gradually, in the course of the 20 years <clears throat> between the Supreme Court's decision in Betts against Brady and its decision in Gideon, it became clear that the rule of Betts and Brady was not adequate. Now, that became clear not in vacuum. That became clear in the context of a social, political, moral, and religious development in the nation. And this, to my mind, is the, impo is the important point. Our national mores had changed. It was not long before 1942, strange as it may seem, that poor people, indigents, paupers, were regarded in some of the states as in the same category as, as uh, diseased and rotten food. They were excluded from entry into states. There's a marvelous uh, and a very dated decision of the Supreme Court eloquently expressing approval of the state treatment of paupers as if they were diseased uh, food or unsound articles of uh, commerce. But time changed all of that. And the period, and in the, uh, this period, this great period of 20 years between 1942 and 1963, our society had changed and was no longer willing to accept the view that an indigent or a pauper was a sinful person not deserving of protection or the aid of the state. So that by the time that Gideon came along, the result, I think, was inevitable that the Supreme Court would rule that every person accused by the state of a serious crime was entitled to uh, counsel. Now, just to complete this process, you will see I have told you that uh, the disclosure by the time of Gideon of the inadequacy of the earlier ruling in Betts against Brady. It's inadequacy as a legal tool, the inadequacy of the requirement that special circumstances be shown. I have told you of the change in the national mores, national attitude towards poor people in that period. Now there was one other factor, and uh, that was uh, the court's own precedence with respect to the interpretation of the provision in the Fifth Amendment guaranteeing the right of counsel. 
And the question is whether that provision was applicable to all persons, including indigents, and whether it would be applied to the states, or first, whether it was applicable only to persons who could afford to hire their own counsel, and second, whether it was applicable only to the federal government and the states were free to do what they want to. And I say to you that as the third part of the basis for this change, the sudden, apparently sudden change in Gideon, there were the decisions of the Supreme Court on other aspects of the right to counsel. There were precedents. As early as 1932, the Supreme Court had ruled in a revolutionary decision that the Constitution of the United States, the Due Process Clause of the, Fifth of the 14th Amendment, required the states to furnish counsel to indigent defendants in capital cases where the defendant might be executed. That was the famous Scottsboro case. The decision was handed down not by the liberal or radical Supreme Court uh, that some people think there is today, but by the nine old men. And the opinion itself, which is a very eloquent opinion, was written by a pillar of conservatism, Mr. Justice Sutherland. 1932, Scottsboro case, case that's shocked the nation's conscience, in which the Supreme Court laid down the rule for the states that wherever a person may be executed at the end of the trial, he must be provided with counsel if he can afford his own. And then the other part of it, to try to show you this, this process and how it develops, the other great development was that more and more of the states were adopting rules uh, requiring the appointment of counsel for indigents in uh, serious uh, 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 crimes. And so by the time that Gideon came along to the Supreme Court, you see, the pressure of events, the change in the national conscience, the change in our political and religious feelings about poor people and the rights of the individual, an accumulation of precedents the court's own experience, all of those combined so that really the problem presented by Gideon, problem of an advocate in the Supreme Court who was presenting Gideon's case was not whether the Supreme Court would reverse his conviction because the state had refused to appoint counsel, but whether how many votes you could get to reverse it. That was a problem. It was foreordained by the process of life and uh, of the law. I hope I've made this clear. People, I think it's tragic, really, that people fail to understand this. And when they see it, I, I cite Gideon to you in this detail not because it's uh, strange or different, but because it's typical of the whole process. And people read in their newspapers that the Supreme Court has decided so-and-so. 
and they think that the court under the leadership of Mr. Justice Marshall, freshest person on the court, has just decided to do something radical again. Uh, and uh, that may sometimes be true, but uh, it's not typical. <laughs> I'm going to skip some things uh, here, and uh, let me, uh, and I want to come to, just to take one other illustration, which is the case that I suppose all of you have heard about. That's uh, Miranda against Arizona. And when you turn on your uh, television, you can see uh, the uh, policemen walking their beat and say, saying to them, rehearsing to themselves and saying so that everybody will hear it. I warn you that you have a right to counsel. Uh, you don't have to say anything and anything you say may be used against you and, and so on. You see that uh, policemen are supposed to uh, uh, memorize that and they're also given uh, placards that they can exhibit to uh, people. That, that's, that's the case that's aroused a great deal of controversy. I want to come to that and talk to you about this process in terms of that case. But before I do it, I would like to try to cover very briefly the whole field by reference to what I think is happening in this country. The decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States cannot be considered in isolation. That's the point that I'm trying to make. They have to be considered in terms of history, the history of the court's own decisions, the accumulation of the precedents, and basically, basically in terms of the fulfillment of that great, marvelous, and wonderful document, the Constitution of the United States. This nation is, and since its foundation, has been engaged upon one of the greatest ventures, if not the greatest venture in human history, and that is the attempt to live up to, to give meaning to, to give body and blood and substance to those great principles that are stated in the Constitution of the United States as the guarantees of the dignity and the greatness and the freedom and the magnificence of the human spirit. And that is the adventure to which this nation is dedicated. And the job of the Supreme Court and the history of the Supreme Court, there have been many lapses, many lapses, many serious lapses. But if you look at it by and large and over the long period, the history of the Supreme Court is the history of a magnificently conceived institution by and large, dedicated to this great national purpose, which is the fulfillment of the Constitution, which is the bringing to full life and full glory the marvelous concepts of freedom, 
the marvelous concept of the sanctity of the individual, the due process of law, the concept of equality before the law that is in our Constitution. And obviously, obviously the fulfillment of that in terms of today is different and requires different application of those great principles than it did in the days when we had slavery or in the days when our religious uh, and uh, national morality had not progressed further than a toleration of the idea that poor people, poor people are like diseased articles or diseased animals. Obviously, obviously, as a nation's religious and moral conception advances, these great phrases of the Constitution, these great phrases of the Constitution acquire and need a new meaning, new terms of application. And that's what always goes on, and it's going on now, and particularly now, the pace, much to our discomfort too, is rapid. And the reason for it is that we are in a period of a fantastic acceleration, fantastic acceleration of our religious and social standards, of what we believe is due to individuals and to what individuals are all these rights due if we are to fulfill the Constitution and fulfill what I hope I may refer to as our divine destiny. We are moving now at a fantastic rate from democracy for most of our people to democracy for all. And that means the Negroes, and it means the poor white people, and it means the most unfortunate and the most destitute of us all. And make no mistake about it, those people at the very bottom of the heap, about 30 million of them, test our national character most acutely when they are caught up in the criminal process. And it is those people and not you and you and you and me who most often come into contact with the police and the processes of the law. And now with the awakening of those people The way in which they are handled by the law is of the greatest importance because we ask them, do we not? We ask them, do we not, to obey the rule of law, don't we? We ask them to be a part of a society under the rule of law, don't we? 
And how can we ask them that? How can we ask them that? Unless the law is fair and decent and just and its procedures are civilized and in accordance with our ideals and unless the law as it applies to the poorest Negro is exactly the same as it would be applied to you or to me. The national decision has been made. We didn't make it on the Supreme Court. The national decision has been made to admit these 30 million people to full membership in our society. And if that national decision is made, as it has been, it follows, I suggest to you, as the night the day that the rules of law must correspond. Now, let me turn to the Miranda case. You can see with some relief that I'm shoving, shoving away papers here. It's such a, I'm getting such nice playback from the audience here that I have a tendency to talk too much. And uh, let's uh, go to Miranda. The Miranda case arose as a result of a decision by the Arizona Supreme Court. It came, came to uh, the Supreme Court of the United States. as a result of that, uh, of a decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. It followed a decision by the court called Map Against Ohio. Map Against Ohio was the famous or infamous case, depending on how you look at it, in which the court held that if, a, if the police in any state broke into your house and seized some objects, not only was their breaking and entering unconstitutional and, un, and unlawful unless it were done with a warrant or on the basis of a probable cause, but that the evidence that they seized could not be used in a trial. Now this overturned a number of uh, the precedents in a number of states. So it was an ironic thing that all of the states agreed as the federal constitution also clearly commanded that breaking into a house uh, without a warrant, without probable cause, and seizing objects therein was unlawful and unconstitutional. Police had engaged in unlawful and unconstitutional behavior. But at the time of MAP against Ohio, almost half of the states, despite that, would allow the unlawfully seized evidence to be used against a defendant in a criminal trial. 
And uh, in 1961, the Supreme Court of the United States said that process must stop, that the federal constitution prohibited the states from permitting the use of uh, this unlawfully and unconstitutionally seized article in a prosecution against a, um, a defendant. And as a result of that, the court has been confronted with a large number of, uh, of cases coming from the states and involving the problem of uh, uh, unlawful seizure of evidence. But if, again, if you, if you look at this process, and I've examined it in uh, detail in a paper, which uh, I hope the university somewhere will uh, see fit to publish it sometime, if you look at that process again, you will see the parallel to what I have said to you about Gideon. That is to say, the gradual accumulation of precedence in response to disclosures of the abuse, the gradual deviation from gradual departure from the rule that permitted, that imposed no sanctions whatever on the police. They broke into your house and unlawfully, unconstitutionally, and seized some clothing unlawfully and unconstitutionally. There are no sanctions provided in law of any consequence for that. And you can see in the development of the doctrine the gradual uh, erosion of the defense of that uh, uh, practice, which indeed I submit to you is an unconscionable practice, a practice in which the state affirmed the unconstitutionality of police action but proceeded to condone it. Now, it was following MAP against Ohio and a good many intervening cases that the court was confronted with the Miranda situation. And it was this case that established the principle to which I have referred, that the prosecution may not use statements obtained from a person after he's been taken into custody unless he's been given certain warnings. He must be informed that he has the right to remain silent, that anything he says may be used against him, that he has a right to consult with a lawyer and to have the lawyer present with him during interrogation, and that if he is indigent, a lawyer will be appointed to represent him. Now, why is that important? Why is that a, why does that rise to the dignity of something that is necessary to protect, to guarantee due process of law? Well, as I told you when I was briefly describing MAP against Ohio, for many years you had a situation in many states in which the police could brutally violate the Constitution. 
I don't say that they did. I don't say this is their practice, but it happened. And it happened much too often. And seize an article in violation of the Constitution and then use it in trial against a defendant and without any effective sanctions against the police. And Miranda came along, and Miranda again involved the problem of police conduct. Miranda addressed itself to the very difficult question, the tremendously important question of what goes on behind the curtains of the police station, what goes on in the interrogation room. The court good many years ago, the Supreme Court a good many years ago, held that where the defendant can prove, even in a state proceeding, that a confession was extorted from him by the police, that it is not really voluntary. If the, the, the defendant can prove that his confession was given after he had been beaten by the police, after he had been deprived of food, after uh, days or, or many, many hours of uh, interrogation, then presumably that, that confession is not involuntary and cannot be used against the defendant. Miranda took that principle and applied it in a different way. The basic question in Miranda is whether any confession should be used in court. Any confession should be used in court which has been obtained from a person who is not represented by counsel. We say that the right to counsel is inviolate in the courtroom. That when a defendant is put on trial for a serious defense, he must have counsel unless he voluntarily waives it. Now, does the Constitution's guarantee of the right to counsel stop there? Does it begin and stop in the courtroom? Or does the Constitution's guarantee of the right to counsel go back to the point of police interrogation? That was the underlying issue in Miranda. Remember, most criminal cases are disposed of by pleas of guilty. Pleas of guilty are usually uh, the, uh, not always, but, but usually, or perhaps quite often, the product of police interrogation. Remember, confessions do not originate in the courtroom. Confessions originate in the interrogation room of the police, and that's where they're reduced to writing. The question that scholars and philosophers have raised is whether a society which guarantees the right to counsel only in the courtroom has fulfilled the mandate of the Constitution. Now, Miranda did not go so far as to say, yes, a confession will not be received in evidence unless the defendant 
has had the uh, counsel with him, has actually had counsel with him. All that Miranda did, as I have told you, is to require that the police give the defendant certain warnings, including advising the defendant that he is entitled to counsel during the interrogation and that if he does not have count money to hire counsel, a lawyer will be appointed for him. Again, I want to point out to you very briefly, you can see that Miranda is a capstone on top of a lot of building blocks. You can see that Miranda comes from the Supreme Court's refusal to sustain state court convictions where the confession was involuntarily obtained. You can see a germ of Miranda in Map Against Ohio, where the court refused to permit the state to use evidence unconstitutionally seized. I haven't got time to sketch all of this to you, but if, uh, the fact of the matter is that, there, that you, you see this structure. As you look at the history of our cases, you can see this structure building to Miranda. I don't mean by any means, by, I don't mean at all that Miranda is the end of a process. This process is a never-ending one. But I mean to say that Miranda was the result of a logical and rather inevitable procession of, uh, of uh, decisions, fundamentally based on two things. Not only the right to counsel, not only the right to counsel guaranteed by the Constitution, but also the right in the Constitution, the right that the Constitution gives everybody to decline to incriminate himself, the right against self-incrimination. Now. At the same time, I suggest to you that Miranda reflects the political and moral and religious development of our time. Miranda was decided in 19, uh, 1966. 1966. And if you'll think for a moment about what was happening in the country in 1966 and the few years preceding 1966, I think you can see the operation of facts, the operation of religious, moral, political conscience of a nation upon what Learned Hand called the majestic generalities of our Constitution and our Bill of Rights. You can see, I think, that a nation which is rather suddenly alerted to the plight of the poor people and the destitute people might well have felt 
that due process of law, due process of law, meant that when one of these people, or anybody, but particularly one of these destitute people, was picked up on the street by the police, that before he is what interrogated, a polite word, by the police, the lonely, friendless, overpowering atmosphere of a police station or a cell or an interrogation room, and before that speak, and that anything he says may be used against him. How could a nation, let me put it this way, how could a nation that is so disturbed as we are now about conditions in the ghettos, how could a nation that is prepared to spend billions of dollars to eliminate those conditions, how could a nation so dedicated, so committed, accept less as the definition of due process of law. How could a nation have failed to say that in the year 1966, due process of law, the majestic words of the Constitution, includes these rights. Well, you know, Supreme Court's had decisions have had, in my judgment, very, very little to do with the increasing crime rate, and I can prove that to you, and sometime maybe you let me come back and talk to some of you and, and make the proof in detail. And, I, and the best way to prove it is by reference to what happened with respect to the juvenile crime rate. Prior to the decision in Galt last year, which I wrote for the court, and in, in which we applied certain of the basic constitutional rights to juveniles, prior to that decision, none of these decisions of the Supreme Court applied in the field of juveniles, juveniles usually being people up to 18, youths up to 18. So police were free, weren't they, to eliminate crime with respect to juveniles, whether you call it juvenile offense or what. Police were absolutely free. They didn't have the incubus of the Supreme Court in that field until last year. They were free to do it. Juvenile authorities were free to do it. Absolutely free. But the figures, which I have included in my paper, won't bother you with, with here, show that the increase in the rate of juvenile offenses, crimes as we would call them in adults, during that same period, proportionalized to take 
to take account of the uh, differences in the rate of increase in population. The increase in crime in that uncontrolled field, unhampered by decisions of the Supreme Court, were substantially greater than they were in the field of adult crime. I've said this several times at various places, and uh, somehow or other it's uh, kind of ignored that uh, that's, th that's the fact. Uh, maybe my brother Marshall will be a little disappointed that the Supreme Court doesn't have more influence than that, but on the other hand, maybe it's, uh, some other people will think that it's uh, a comfort. But let me say, uh, let me say generally about uh, this, the role of the Supreme Court, the role of our courts, is not to serve as an adjunct to the prosecutor's office, nor are they to serve as an instrument of the individual accused of crime. The role of the courts is neither to serve the prosecutor nor the defender. The role of the courts is to see that the individual and the state obey the rule of law, both its substance and its procedures. And with humility and care, constantly to define and to redefine within our constitutional province the meaning of the rule of law, the magnificent generalities of the Constitution, so that the Constitution may be interpreted and applied as the Founders intended, as a living instrument, good for their times, good for our past, good for today, and in my judgment, good for the future as far as the eye can see or the mind can project. I believe that the courts, our principles of criminal administration, must be living proof if our, in our society, living proof to every man, white or negro, pauper or millionaire, that the law provides to him an impartial tribunal, that it supplies him with tools for defense if he needs them, just as it supplies the state with weapons for prosecution. The courts must be living proof that the Constitution means what it says, that its guarantees of due process, a fair trial, and equal protection for all are meaningful, are meaningful to every individual, not just to some, and that they stand as bulwarks of freedom and decency. And the courts must be alert to realize, to read the Constitution with an analytical and objective mind, 
and to apply it faithfully, realizing that with the great men who wrote its words that the essential meaning of our Constitution, the essential meaning of our democracy, the essential meaning of our way of life is that the object of our efforts is the individual and that the protections which the Constitution commands for the individual are in the long run the best, indeed the only assurance of the survival of the state itself.